Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I am Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow in the Center for Constitutional Studies, and I will be moderating this uh, discussion today about Charles' new book. Uh, start off, I'll just introduce the speakers briefly. They all have extensive bios, um, so I'll give you a lay of the land. Uh, first for Charles C.W. Cook, who is a writer at the National Review and a graduate of the University of Oxford, at which he studied modern history and politics. His work is focused especially on Anglo-American history, British liberty, free speech, Second Amendment, and American exceptionalism. He's a commentator on numerous st uh, channels and media outlets, written for National Interest, The Washington Times, and The New York Post. And he is the author of this spectacular new book, which is the object of today's conversation, The Conservatarian Manifesto. So uh, Charles is going to speak. Will the paperback be about a third the size so you can wave it like that? Slam it down. Exactly. So Charles will speak for about 10 minutes or so to give us a general idea of his thesis, probably somewhat inherent in the name of the book. Uh, and then after Charles, we hear from Catherine Mangu Ward, uh, who is the managing editor of Reason Magazine. She writes about everything from food to space, to education, to robots, to things like that. Um, she is a Future Tense Fellow at the New America Foundation currently. She was previously a reporter for the Weekly Standard and a researcher for the New York Times blog, op-ed op -ed page, sorry. <coughs> Graduate of Yale University with a BA in political science and philosophy. Then we'll be hearing from my colleague Ilya Shapiro, who is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute and the Center for Constitutional Studies. And he is the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which will be coming out in September on Constitution Day, so everyone can come. We're diligently working on it right now. Um, he is a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago. And then coming on the back end is going to be Ben Dominich, who is a writer, conservative writer and blogger and the founder of uh, Red State Blog. He's a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute and the publisher of The Federalist. So without further ado, uh, Charles, if you'd like to give us a little bit of your book, uh, lay out of your book and, and talk about it. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, the, the basic argument of the book uh, is that Barack Obama has not managed to do what he wanted to do and that this has provided uh, both an opportunity for conservatives and libertarians and also a set of problems. Um, early on in, in Obama's tenure, perhaps when he was running for president even, he took a swipe at Bill Clinton. He said Clinton hadn't been a particularly world-changing president, but Ronald Reagan had, and he wanted to be the Ronald Reagan uh, of the left. Now, although he has achieved a few of his aims, uh, he hasn't done that, in my view. Most of his achievements have come by executive order or through the court. Uh, he's lost an unbelievable number of seats in Congress and the Senate uh, at the state level, and he hasn't managed to entrench in the American mind uh, the progressive disposition. Uh, the problem for the right, although the Republican Party has seen a resurgence in reaction to Obama, the problem for the right is that it's not as if anyone really likes us either. Uh, I say us from my perspective as a more conservative libertarian, that's not to uh, taint anyone at Cato with the right-wing brush. Um, but from my perspective, we haven't won because people have taken to the streets and said, yes, free markets, uh, yes, federalism. We've won because there's been a reaction against Obama. The conservatarian idea, which is in the title of the book, has come partly from that and partly from 
uh, and other developments. So I'm going to briefly address those. Uh, the first is that people on the right were upset with the Bush administration and with what Republicans and conservatives did last time they had power. Uh, it's presumed lazily within the media uh, that the Tea Party rose up because Obama was the first president, uh, black president rather, uh, and because Obamacare uh, came to the fore. That's not quite true. It started before that. It started in opposition to a Republican government, essentially, a unified government, uh, that spent too much and spied too much and controlled too much from the center. Uh, we can cut Bush a little bit of slack because he didn't expect 9-11 to happen, but that doesn't explain, for example, uh, why No Child Left Behind was passed. It doesn't explain why Medicare Part D uh, was passed. None of those came from the invasion of Afghanistan uh, or Iraq. This has been a long-term problem within the right, uh, and the self-professed conservatarians were writing about it with that name, with that word, as early as 2007-2008. Uh, the second group of self-described conservatarians, and I see an increasing number of them, as you would imagine, uh, are younger people who are not progressives or statists, but who are not conservatives or libertarians either. These are the people who will say to you, when I'm around libertarians, I feel conservative. When I'm around conservatives, I feel libertarian. They came up with this conservatarian word. I didn't. It's not a particularly nice word. It's better than libeservative. <laughs> uh, but it expresses uh, a dissatisfaction uh, with both sides. Broadly speaking, these are people uh, who are in favor of gay marriage, uh, who are in favor of the legalization of marijuana and possibly more, um, but who are not comfortable with the open borders position or with some of the non-interventionism uh, taken to extremes that you do see in some libertarian circles. And they've come up with this conservatarian label uh, to describe themselves. Now, uh, as you might imagine, that there is so much division on the right is something of a problem for it, given that it doesn't have too many votes to spare. The reality is that younger people on the right are staunchly in favor of both gay marriage and, say, uh, the legalization of pot, and a lot of older people are staunchly against them. That is to say, younger people sometimes vote on these issues, older people sometimes vote on these issues. What do you do? It's a quandary. Well, the central thesis of my book, uh, as a long-term project, is that what ails the right is in some ways what ails the country at large. Uh, we do live in a country now in which the election of a president that we don't like uh, yields a four- or eight-year funk. Uh, if Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, or God forbid, Donald Trump, uh, were to become president uh, in 2017, the left will spend a good number of the next four years on the verge of tears, as we have watching this president. In a country of this size, that really doesn't make much sense, and it's not how it's supposed to work. America is far more diverse now, not racially, that's sort of irrelevant to me, uh, diverse religiously, intellectually, politically, than it has been for a long time. Charles Murray just wrote an excellent uh, piece on this. Uh, it is the case that the Baptist in Mississippi has very little in common today with the hipster in Brooklyn or in Portland, Oregon, uh, bar maybe a common language. And yet we are centralizing at a frightening rate. At exactly the moment we've been liberated by technology, at exactly the moment that we've started to indulge more self-expression, we look to Washington to raise uh, and answer our questions. And my view is that the federal system, which is the, uh, the linchpin of the whole Constitution, 
uh, can, in the most part, there are a couple of exceptions, help us uh, to keep the country together and help people uh, to thrill to the same flag, however deep-seated their differences are. Now, I'm sure we'll come on to the areas in which that isn't possible. Uh, those are obviously immigration, in which you need one national policy, defense, in which you need one national policy, uh, and I think to a large extent civil rights as well. That ship has sailed, and it should have. But on everything else, there really is no reason uh, that uh, an educational transportation or energy or zoning policy needs to be run from the center. And for, for far too long now, and I indict the Bush administration in the book for this, we have come to see, on the right, I should say, we have come to see federalism in the way that many on the left see it, which is either as a way of uh, experimenting, using the states as laboratories, and then exporting their findings nationally, uh, or as a way of winning locally where we can't win nationally until we build a coalition. That, of course, is not really the point in federalism, at least it wasn't the original point. Uh, back in the 18th century, it was by no means assured uh, that Quakers and southern slave owners and northeastern Puritans could live together under one strong government. And so uh, they created a system in which they could thrive separately. It's okay to say that Massachusetts is a great state and that Texas is a great state. And I think uh, that if we are to continue uh, as a single nation with an increasingly atomized society. Uh, not just conservatives will have to take advantage of this, but everyone is going to have to take advantage uh, of that system and return power as locally as is possible. Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd like to start out by congratulating Charles for his incredible chutzpah in writing this book, because here he is, he's a writer at National Review, and he's like, you know, if only somebody could write a book about the places that libertarians and conservatives could work together in some kind of a political alliance. And of course, he's a writer at the home of the person who wrote this book so definitively decades and decades ago. You know, Frank, Frank Meyer's fusionism is the thing that has sparked, I think it's actually probably accurate to say, hundreds of debates on this exact stage alone about the question of, you know, can libertarians and conservatives be friends? Should they be friends? What does that look like? Um, so, you know, kudos to you for being like, thank you, Frank Meyer, for that introduction. And now time for an update. Um, but, but of course, it is due for an update, right? I mean, what, what Frank Meyer was able to use as the glue that held the alliance together, among other things, is uh, was the sort of threat of communism and of a, a sort of real totalizing collectivism that was uh, in incredibly real and incredibly pressing at the time that he was writing. That isn't the case now, uh, though uh, I think Charles and many others have convincingly argued that this that uh, impulse simply takes other... Um, perhaps no less benign but more subtle forms. Uh, so I, I'm just going to go ahead and hop into as the, uh, as the Reason Magazine uh, representative on this panel, as the person with purple hair, I feel it's my job to sort of, uh, you know, uh, do my best to hold conservatives at an, arms, uh, at an arm's length, not least because the relationship between libertarians and conservatives is, uh, and I guess trigger warning on this, because we have to do those now, but um, it's sort of... warn about the trigger warning, because the trigger... I could trigger you with my trigger warning. Okay, so it's sort of an infinite, uh, you know, uh, nesting doll of trigger warnings here. Um, 
it's an abusive relationship, right? It, you know, the, the conservatives say to libertarians, no, no, we really agree. You know, I love you when I'm sober. And it's, it's like this, it's like, it's all fine at the end of eight years of democratic rule. And it's not a coincidence that this is when this book came out, right? We are at the end of a, uh, a long period of conservatives essentially being out of power and really starting to see that maybe these libertarians, they have something going for them. It's, it's going to be OK. We really agree. History has repeated itself many times, uh, as it tends to happen when conservatives do ultimately get into power. The, uh, the libertarian alliance immediately grows shaky and gets sort of tossed aside. So we have this, this, uh, this sort of principle of, the, uh, of uh, federalism, of the kind of decentralization of power. Uh, and you know we're sort of we're sort of sliding down that slippery slope together. We're at the top, and everyone's like, you know, let's uh, you know more power to the states. And the conservatives and libertarians are together, like we, you know. And then it's like, well, you know, less regulation on business. And it's like we. And then it's like, well, let's you know, in, let's let people uh, make their own choices about parenting and education. We. And then the libertarians are like, the fundamental unit of society is the individual. And conservatives are like, hold on. You know, the feet are jammed into the hill and libertarians keep going. They're like, polyamory doesn't look so bad. And <laughs> conservatives are like, no, definitely no. Um, so I guess, you know, I think that as a tactical matter, as a matter of creating a, a sort of series of policy prescriptions, the conservatarian project is, uh, is a good one and one that, that libertarians, despite my jokes here, should, should take seriously and not um, sort of reflexively oppose for the what I frankly think are often kind of aesthetic or signaling reasons that hold the two uh, ideologies apart, right? It, it is this phenomenon that Charles is describing where young people just sort of feel that conservatives are icky in a way that they uh, can't fully articulate um, that, that, that holds those groups apart. At the same time, I do think uh, the sort of uh, devolution of power until we get to a thing that I don't like yeah, I, Charles's version of federalism is far more robust and appealing to a libertarian, I think, than the version of federalism one often hears trotted out. And frankly, that we're going to hear trotted out so much in this campaign. I, I think you know we should probably just go ahead and set up some kind of little automated red flag warning whenever any of the mainstream candidates, and I include even you know the more libertarian among them in this, when they say federalism you should always be auditing that statement for, do I just mean the way that I can either A, get out of answering a tricky question, or, or B, do this thing where I've lost at the national level, but maybe I can salvage a little at the local level. Um, that is something that's worth holding candidates to. If they're going to use the rhetoric of federalism, they better tough it out and actually be federalists in a little bit more of a robust sense. But I would say at the same time, and I hope we can talk a little more about this today, uh, if we're going to make the fundamental unit the individual, and I think we should, I think that's where, if you prefer rights language, that's where rights reside. If you just prefer to talk about outcomes, I think that's how you get the best outcomes, is to bring the decision making all the way down to the individual. There will always be places where conservatives are going to say no to that. There will always be places where libertarians and conservatives are going to fall apart when they try to build an alliance there. Um, and to paper over that is nearly always to the detriment of libertarians, is nearly always going to be a debate in which uh, conservatives are um, able to win the, the popular discussion. And uh, you know, I think what we can talk about also is whether or not that means they're right, whether or not it, you know, when a legislature or a popular electorate sides with Charles, sides with a sort of more conservative version of libertarianism, does that mean that's where we sort of give ground? 
Uh, or does it mean that that still shows sort of flaws with the system or flaws with the process or flaws with the conservatarian alliance? Uh, I've always been a big tent kind of guy, uh, both philosophically and in terms of um, uh, pragmatism. Uh, you know, you see a lot, uh, regardless of what your particular ideology, whether you call yourself conservative, libertarian, or something else, you hang around in social circles, especially in your younger years, and uh, you know, everyone tries to define themselves so you know they are the only proper expositor of whatever the you know ideology uh, they adhere to. Uh, it, it's like uh, now, on Facebook now, there are 57 genders or something like this, right? Well, you go to a, you know, a, a libertarian or liberty movement, uh, you know, happy hour or, or, or you know, house party somewhere, and you know, you can't tell your minarchists from the suburban feudalists from the, you know, whatever. I, don't, I can't even keep track. I don't even keep track of the categories anymore. Uh, and myself, I, you know, I tend to call myself a classical liberal, but even then there's a problem. I, I said that once and someone was like, well, does that mean you like Hubert Humphrey? Uh, or, you know. um, so, you know, I try to shoe labels. Also, I'm a, you know, constitutional lawyer, so a lot of what I try to do practically is to get five votes on, you know, a court of nine people, and, um, you're not going to get that by, you know, defining your, uh, ideological purity litmus test and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, so uh, I was a natural uh, audience uh, for uh, this book, uh, kind of a, uh, definitely a, a friendly uh, uh, critic or reviewer or what have you, and I particularly like this passage, and this is what most reminded me actually of uh, P.J. O'Rourke, uh, who I've had the pleasure to work with on a couple of legal briefs the last couple of years, but he says, uh, uh, Charlie says, that libertarians' blind spot is that they can become unmoored from reality and behave like Jacobins, disrespectful of tradition, convinced that logic on paper can answer all the important questions about the human experience, dismissive of history and cultural norms, possessed of a purifying instinct, and all too ready to pull down institutions that they fail to recognize are vital to the integrity of the society in which they wish to operate. Pretty harsh, right? So Charlie's clearly on the conservative side, uh, although this you know, does sound like some of the fever swamps of, of the liberty movement that, that uh, you know, we're involved with here at, at Cato. Uh, but conservatism, though, look, look what Charlie says about conservatism. Relying is even worse. Relying as it does on the Burkean presumption that society is the way it is for a reason, it can refuse too steadfastly to adopt to adapt to emerging social and economic realities, and it is apt to transmute solutions that were the utilitarian product of a particular time into articles of high principles. And so, essentially, you know, for Republicans to win, they just need to adopt Reagan's tax policy, but I guess not his immigration policy, uh, and what, send Henry Kissinger around uh, to Iran to engage in shuttle diplomacy, and uh, just say no to drugs, or, or something. You know, that's the winning formula, because, uh, you know, it was tried and true once, it always and ever will be. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of merit in kind of the prescription that if you actually want to move the ball incrementally on whatever your issue is, you need to adopt uh, that sort of uh, big tent. And, you know, I'm not saying that uh, those of us, whether my colleagues or other people in the liberty movement or conservatives, that uh, whether based on policy or based on pragmatism, uh, aren't part of that uh, big tent project. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. Um, uh, I think it takes all kinds. You know, you have to develop your ideology, you have to develop your uh, policy solutions uh, in different ways. Otherwise, you know, how will you know what to end up to propose to the big tent to push uh, in that direction? So, um, you know, there are a number of things that I disagree with Charlie on. Um, the role of judicial review that he talks about in the book. This is kind of the libertarian conservative argument in legal circles about engagement versus restraint. 
Um, immigration definitely, you know, I think it gets, you know, the kind of the, the libertarian or the Cato position gets caricatured as kind of open borders. Well, no, we have borders. We don't live in utopia. There are bad people out there who want to do bad things. Um, but uh, certainly uh, immigrants, including illegal immigrants, are a net benefit uh, to the country. But how do you manage that, et, et cetera? Um, I think Charlie does well to divide up the so-called social issues between abortion and um, same-sex marriage or, or other related issues because of the, uh, well, frankly, libertarian or, or million harm principle. That is, in abortion at a certain point, um, whether that's birth, conception, quickening, insolment, anything in between, there is another individual involved that has other rights that can be harmed. Uh, whereas with uh, consenting adults, uh, that's harder to see. There's more of these amorphous societal harms. So I think that's a good presentation uh, of social issues, which really shouldn't be lumped in together. I mean, some people lump in gun rights into social issues as well, or drugs or what have you. I mean, each of them is kind of um, different in their, own, in, in their own way. So anyway, I commend uh, uh, Charles's book. Uh, I would rather spend uh, the libertarian happy hours debating and discussing it rather than, you know, how best to privatize the military and, you know, which, which court should be dr- run by, you know, which warlord and, and things like that. Um, but uh, a, a worthy project, and, you know, I encourage all of you to buy the book and read it and uh, agree or disagree to put your spin on it. I'm, I'm sad to learn that, that Ilya is a squish on letters of Mark, but... <laughs> um, so uh, I'll, I'll offer, I guess, a more uh, uh, conservative perspective on this, uh, albeit the perspective of someone who is in favor of uh, people generally being able to worship their God, teach their kids, buy their guns, grow their pot, sell their raw milk, hoard their gold, and uh, generally uh, ally with people in their neighborhood to decide how many prostitutes they want around. So it is perhaps... Yes, and, and marry anybody who, who they want in that neighborhood and generally be left alone, uh, which I think is essentially a conservatarian view, if I've, uh, if I've gotten it mostly correct. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, in, terms of, in terms of this book that, that Charles has created, which you should buy and you should read, um, whether you are primarily trying to answer a philosophical question about where the right ought to go uh, or a political question about where the right ought to go. And that was kind of my key takeaway from it, because it seemed to me you were dealing primarily with the politics of these issues and sort of how they have played out in sort of interesting ways, uh, and then somewhat with the, with the philosophical future of the right. Fusionism, generally, from my perspective, is not merely a political answer to a problem. It is a philosophical answer to a problem. It is saying that these things go together not just because we have mashed them together in the way that the left uh, creates uh, uh, coalitions that often are nonsensical in terms of their different priorities, but that it does chart a path forward generally, one that is that has a strong philosophy undergirding it. Uh, and that's sort of the, the key thing that I think I'd like to, to hear more from you about. But in terms of its recommendations about where the right should go, uh, I generally agree with them. I'm, I'm uh, of a different mind on the immigration topic. Uh, but I think that there are two key problems that uh, will present themselves to any conservatarian uh, majority going forward, either in a political sense or if the majority is gained in a philosophical sense, and that's this. Uh, For the first, I think that unfortunately over the course of the uh, fusionist era, however you define that, there was very little that was done uh, to shore up any principles of federalism, either the accurate kind uh, or the inaccurate kind. Uh, and that we have unfortunately reached a point now where so many of the decisions that states make or that localities make uh, are nationalized to a great extent. That it, we no longer have a situation 
where Vermont can create a single-payer uh, health care program uh, and then pay for it with the money from Vermont. Okay, if they were to do that, I would be fine with that. I would not want to live in Vermont, but as long as they were paying for it themselves, I would not have an issue with it. The problem is that we've now reached a point where not just Democrats, but Republicans as a whole are relying on federal taxpayer dollars taken from taxpayers in other states to fund all sorts of manners of programs, all sorts of approaches to uh, entitlement policy, and doing so in a manner that is completely irresponsible and at odds with everything that they have to say about federalism and the Tenth Amendment. Uh, we are at a point now where you know, not just uh, sort of liberal Republicans, but people like Mike Pence, people like Chris Christie, and people like John Kasich are taking money out of the pockets of taxpayers in other states and giving it to able-bodied, childless, working-age adults. Okay, which, from my perspective, is as you know as as true as it was when Tocqueville was arguing against it uh, in in France at the time. Uh, that is socialism, and it is something that uh, has been endorsed, I think, in a bipartisan manner. And tearing that apart is going to be a project that I think is very ambitious and is going to require a lot of of uh, uh, people who are within the fiscal conservative uh, side of of this coalition to be particularly loud in voicing their complaints about uh, how unfortunate this is. This is also true of other areas of policy as well. But uh, for the sake of brevity, let's shift to the other challenge, which I think is uh, you are entering an era now where social liberalism does not mean what it used to mean. Uh, in fact, I would like to hear it defined in a, in a more uh, clear-cut way. Because from my perspective, they sound like a bunch of Puritans and, and, are, and are now seeking out uh, uh, thought criminals to a much greater degree. They require safe spaces. This is not a social liberalism that favors civil liberty. It's not a social liberalism that uh, favors leaving each other alone. It's a social liberalism that says that a requirement of personal liberty is to take money out of the pockets of others and use it to pay for all manners of birth control. Otherwise, your liberty is not not gained. Literally this, uh, yesterday, a, uh, a writer in the New York Times claimed that her personal liber liberty would not be fulfilled unless someone else was paying for her IUD. Now, I'm not trying to take away her IUD or say she can't get one, but I am saying that I don't want to have to pay for it. And that, from my perspective, is going to be a very difficult challenge for both libertarians and conservatives going forward as we enter a new era in which your own agency, funded by others, uh, is something that is now recrafted as being your personal liberty. So from my perspective, those are two big challenges for this. Um, thank you, everyone. Uh, I, I do want to actually dovetail off of Vin's point here on the political versus the philosophical, because that was a question that I had. Uh, this, the point has been made that demographics and the uh, opinions of younger people versus the opinions of older people essentially mean the Republican Party has to become more libertarian if it doesn't want to die off, uh, and especially on gay marriage and legalization issues. So is part of your book sort of advocating that, that, that there's a necessity to uh, some changes at least? Yes, although that will happen over time. Where I think in the, in the short term that they can try to bridge the gap is again to uh, be better federalists. For example, uh, suppose that you're a younger person in favor of pot legalization uh, and you consider yourself to be a Republican, but your grandmother is uh, of the same party but feels the opposite. Um, if a presidential candidate stands up and says, I will use the federal government to make pot illegal everywhere, uh, one of those people has to lose in that equation, uh, especially if their opponent immediately seizes on the opportunity uh, and says the opposite. Uh, if the presidential candidate says, 
I'm going to get out of the pot business completely. I don't think the federal government should have anything to do with this, but of course Mississippi can set its own laws and Colorado can set its own laws. You then have some opportunity uh, for the two people to say, all right, I'll vote for that guy and then we'll fight it out whether they live in the same state uh, or not. And in general, I think that uh, is a great opportunity for more libertarian-minded people because up until now, it's been difficult, at least with the issues that have been uh, discussed of late, it's been difficult to articulate uh, to a progressive why they should be in favor of localism, of federalism, of more power at the state level. Uh, At the moment, the people of Colorado and Washington State, and I think now Oregon, uh, essentially have their win on marijuana uh, at the mercy of Loretta Lynch's mood and indeed at the mercy of the next president. Uh, We know for a fact, as Ben suggested, if if Chris Christie wins the nomination, uh, pot will be enforced, pot laws will be enforced federally. Uh, We shouldn't be having that debate at the national level. Um, But if I was sitting in Colorado or Washington, I would think, huh, perhaps I would like to get the federal government uh, out of this question. Uh, So for for 2016, for 2020, uh, I do think there's an opportunity there for the right to to make its case uh, that these issues can be resolved locally and that therefore those differences can be accommodated. I think by 2024, maybe 2028, uh, especially on the gay marriage question, these are going to be moot points. Uh, I think the tendency that Ben described is there. Uh, Many people who wanted gay marriage did not just want gay marriage. They didn't want a president who said, I'm indifferent to gay marriage. I will accept the court decision on gay marriage. Uh, They want a president who is actively in favor of it, who will light the White House up in rainbow colors. This, as a a libertarian-leaning person who's in favor of gay marriage, is something I don't understand because I don't want the government to approve or disapprove of me. I don't care. I want to change public policy. Um, Going forward, 2016, 2020, I don't think it will matter. Long term, yes, you're going to have to see a change. I wonder, though, I mean, what you're describing there is essentially an exciting future in which we have many, many more fair-weather federalists, right? I mean, that, of course, it's true that when you say to someone, like, look, here's your legal weed in a really cool store that's clean and well-lit and the prices are reasonable, and then you say, that guy wants to take it away, they're going to be against it. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's exactly what you described, that, of course, they're only federalists when it's to their outcome. Um, and I, I, I also wonder at, at Ben's kind of casual assertion that he's totally fine with Vermont having single payer as long as he doesn't have to live in Vermont. Of course, tyranny on the state level is still tyranny, right? It's still theft. And, and so, I, again, I wonder, do we not end up in your scenario with a, a nation of fair-weather federalists who describe themselves with a variety of political labels plus slightly devolved yet still horrific policy? Okay, so... I think it's a great point on fair-weather federalism. Uh, I also don't think there's much of uh, an alternative, and I'll explain why. Uh, everyone in this stage, and everyone probably in this room, thinks about politics in an abstract sense. They think about it in a philosophical sense. Uh, most people don't do that, which means you need to demonstrate to most people why you've come to your philosophical, legal, historical, or intellectual conclusions. Now, my thesis in the book, and I could, of course, be entirely wrong, is that as we move forward, we're going to see more flashpoints like the marijuana question at the state level. The only way 
that we're going to convince a mass of people that we need to fracture power in the United States is to demonstrate to them uh, that if we don't, something from them uh, that they value is going to be taken. Does that make them fair weather in the first instance? Possibly it does, yes. But I don't see many of us winning arguments writ large in the abstract. Uh, a, great, a great example of this, I think, although not to do with federalism, was the contraception mandate. Most people process the question of the contraception mandate not on the mandate part, but on the contraception part. They think, do I like contraception? Do I not like contraception? Do I want to pay for it? Do I not? Uh, if you look at polling, 87% of Republicans think that contraception is fine, 90% uh, of Democrats do. There's not really a big gap between those two things. The way it's reported in the media is there are people who are in favor of contraception, there are people who are not. Uh, I always try to say to people, imagine if it were guns. Imagine if you were making an externalities <laughs> argument on the Second Amendment. You could do that. I don't think it's necessarily true, but you could do that. You could say, more guns equals less crime, therefore everyone has to have a gun to improve public safety. Now, uh, that, of course, would be resisted by a good number of people. Everyone has to and have a gun. Everyone pays a tax if you don't buy a gun. Sure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> the point is, is that I am really, really strongly in favor of the Second Amendment, and I really like guns. But that would appall me as a matter of public policy. Why? Because I don't like mandates. Now, conservatives have not been especially good at making that case. We haven't said, for example, enough, hey, the Obama administration is targeting a group called Little Sisters of the Poor. What did we say? At least what did our... For lawyers, sign them up to be your lead plaintiffs for every case you bring. <laughs> what, what did our loudest voices say back when the contraception mandate was initially being debated? They said, why do you need contraception anyway, you slut? That's not how you win arguments. So... Uh, I agree with you that there, there are fair-weather uh, federalists in the office. I agree with you there are likely to be fair-weather mandate opposers. But to be able to put a, a concrete example on an abstract principle um, is, I think, uh, extremely important. But that's, this, I mean, this shows the danger of having this out-of-control government in, in general. The, the problem is it's not that we need to replace the man at the helm. The problem is we need to shrink the ship, uh, uh, as it were. And this kind of... Until we can write, <laughs> until it's just a little plaything in the bathtub, right? Um, no, but uh, the uh, you know what what this uh, kind of playing with fairweather federalism or what have you, uh, you know, our, our constitutional system is designed to allow different systems of health care or pot laws or gun laws you know, above a certain uh, uh, floor of, of basic rights that, that are guaranteed. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's important for people to understand the consequences of, as Thomas Jefferson said, you know, a government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take everything away. And so the, uh, to get really wonky here, we need to figure out a way to move the Nash equilibrium from the government having all power to do both good and bad things, according to any particular's view, to the government not having, the federal government not having that power at all. And then, yeah, we'll still have debates within states about whether something's violating individual right or what the good policy is. Uh, or not, and I could conceive of universal health care in Vermont that would not violate a, a federally protected so, constitutional right. But to continue to like abuse your metaphors here, we're in a prisoner's dilemma, right? I mean, the whole problem is you can't you, you can't cede your power for the stuff you care about without ceding your power for the stuff you don't so, care. It's the big difference though is the right of exit. Is that although it is still bad to have single payer in Vermont, at least you can move to New Hampshire. Now that's a huge improvement on where we are. Would I like? every state to have a constitution that said you can't have single-payer, you can't ban guns, you can't abridge 
uh, any speech at all? Yeah, sure, I would. But we I don't. But we don't. Push back in this room that that would be a better state of affairs. Right. The question is just if by using the strong rhetoric of federalism, do we? or do conservatarians wed themselves to being okay with that outcome in a way that then we will want to revoke? So the, the point that I would just make about uh, the Vermont experience before is, is that one of the big problems with Romneycare is that it did not pay for itself. The federal taxpayers had to give Massachusetts money in order to pay for Romneycare. And obviously, the, the, there are problems with Romneycare. There are problems that we're experiencing nationally because of its export. Uh, but I think that one of the problems there is that that's how, uh, you know, obviously, you made reference to the laboratory of democracy. Everybody talks about this, and, they all, and most people use the term poorly in the sense that uh, what was actually intended with that term was that states would experiment, and then you would export that policy nationally. Okay, which is a very dangerous idea, I actually think. But in terms of in terms of using it wisely, what you would say is, okay, they tried Romney Care, it didn't work. It couldn't pay for itself. And I think that that would be the experience as well. In fact, in Vermont, you know, they went a pretty long ways down the road of trying to build a single payer program before they finally realized that actually we don't have enough people to sustain it. It's not going to work. And I actually think that there is, a, there is a solid learning experience for the country within that, essentially that if states have the ability to fail, if states are not too big to fail in terms of their policies, uh, and that we do not come rushing to bail them out with other people's money that is being taxed from them without representation in that state, uh, then there's a lesson that other states can take away from that. You know, Hey, you might think this is a good idea, but Vermont tried it. It didn't work. There were all these bad things. And you learn from that experience as well. So I think it's not just that right to exit, but it's also you're, you're shutting off the ability to actually have a policy debate that looks at things uh, in, uh, in that specificity without just having that, uh, that ever-present source of federal funding to bail them out. And yet the temptation to say, oh, well, we need, we need to do these experiments to get data, right? Uh, in, in New York right now, uh, there's a, a bill in the state legislature which is proposing uh, capping the growth of the number of Uber drivers to whatever it is, 10% or something like that. And uh, what the, the reasoning behind the bill is, oh, well, you know, we're not, we're not regulating them out of existence. We're not against Uber. We just need to do an experiment to find out what, and of course, of course, the real goal is to regulate Uber out of existence and make it unsustainable. So uh, while, I, again, I'm yeah. highly sympathetic to devolving anything that can be devolved, I think it's dangerous to use the, the phrase laboratories of democracy is dangerous, not least for its export, but also for the fact that sometimes laboratories are blow up. Uh, <laughs> rig, rigged to blow up. Rigged I don't know, is it? <laughs> This is an interesting question, too, which is related to all this to some degree, I mean, the federalism issue, uh, which you address to some extent in your book, but the, the question is, why are libertarians on the right, in your mind? So, some libertarians I know, uh, some who are in this room, uh, would bristle at being called on the right in any way, and much bristle at being accused of allying with the conservatives or having a traditional alliance with conservatives, uh, when half of our positions are on the left, why, do our, why are we either A, consider on the right, um, or B, consider ourselves on the right? I think those that do consider themselves on the, on the right are, are, are reacting to the left. If I can borrow my colleague Kevin Williamson's joke, um, I think he had this debate with, with Nick Gillespie at Reason that, you know, progressives and libertarians would agree on, say, the legalization of drugs for the first 10 minutes. Uh, we want to legalize drugs, so do we, we'll sign the bill, congratulations, let's go and have a party. And then the progressive would come back and say, and we need a department of equitable marijuana distribution, 
and this tax, and we need to make sure there's no disparate impact in the truck drivers that are moving it into Colorado. And at that point, at that point, the the right swoops in and says, okay, we didn't like the policy, but we'll, we'll fight with you on the rest of it. And I think possibly uh, that's what we're going to see with, with gay marriage as well in the long term. Uh, I know a good number of libertarians have agreed with me we should uh, have gay marriage. I was not, uh, as Elias suggests, a fan of the Supreme Court decision, but that's a separate question. Um, but there is now going to be an attempt to enforce conformity and at the point of a bayonet if necessary. And when it comes down to statism or freedom of conscience, uh, I think libertarians tend to side with the right. Um, the other reason, I think, is just historically, uh, we have such a huge government now, uh, a huge national government, interfering with the economic side of things that it's difficult for libertarians not to agree with conservatives on the majority uh, of the debates of the day. Uh, gay marriage is, is actually quite simple. I mean, it, you, you win or you lose. There is gay marriage or there isn't gay marriage. Uh, the regulatory structure is vast. You can win a little bit, you can lose a little bit. Uh, if you look at, say, right to work, in my view, right to work is, a, uh, is an improvement purely because there is a massive government structure already in place. In a vacuum, I would be against it as an interference with contract. But libertarians can look at conservatives then generally, and say, well, I'm with you on this bill. Why? Because the status structure uh, is so big. Why libertarians on the right? I grew I up, in, I was born in, you know, the first few years of my life was in a communist country, so it's very easy for me to say, you know, I'm against that far left thing, and the Democrats are closer to that, or the liberals are, the progressives are closer to that, and therefore I'll, you know, I'll put myself the other way. Yeah, I mean, I came up in the in a sort of fusionist tradition, and and so I think you know don't, never underestimate the power of inertia uh, for for that alliance. Um, certainly, uh, the idea of that Charles puts forth in the book of kind of fudging or abolishing even this idea of of social liberalism as being a part of libertarianism, I think, is long overdue, and it's precisely because it causes more confusion than it resolves increasingly. Uh, I, you know, I find myself, I have always used the very lazy shorthand, you know, when your dentist says, what is a libertarian? And you're like, it's kind of socially liberal, but socially conservative. <laughs> you know, you're, sort of, you're just, the, the, the shortest, stupidest answer that you can give is that one. Uh, and, and more and more, I find that that does yield confusion, uh, precisely because there isn't some kind of deep intrinsic connection between whether or not you think people should be able to, you know, buy a rookie cookie uh, in Colorado and whether or not you think, you know, 20 weeks is the cutoff for abortion. There is nothing about those two things um, that, uh, that is sort of fundamentally connected as far as I can tell. Uh, and certainly not fundamentally connected with the word liberal, uh, which has, uh, you know, infinite other connotations. Um, you know, I said before that the libertarian and conservative relationship is kind of an abusive one, uh, but, you know, if that's true, then to, again, apparently my, my MO today is just metaphor abuse, uh, which is, like, in that, in that scenario, liberals are like, like the hot guy who doesn't know you exist, right? Like there, there are conservatives that are, or there are libertarians who are kind of like, we have a lot in common. 
liberals. We could hang out sometime, and liberals are like, whatever. Um, and, and I think, in particular, the sort of two the two issues that we've talked about a lot here, precisely because they're the ones that are on the move, which is drug legalization and gay marriage, or sort of on the resolution. Um, I think Charles is absolutely right to point out that um, you know, the gay marriage alliance with liberals and libertarians has already fallen apart. It is falling apart right now. It's like popping out of a cake and falling apart. Uh, and the uh, on the drug thing, I think cake that someone was forced to bake. That was for that. <laughs> I was trying to do that subtly, but you know, go ahead, make the joke. Uh, um, and I think on the drug thing, Kevin, Kevin Williamson, who I constantly just want to give a noogie to because he's totally unfair to libertarians on stuff like this, uh, he's right about that, right? He is right, of course. And you know, he said Department of Equitable Marijuana Distribution, but I think actually the way the left is going, it would be legalize it and then immediately tax it and regulate it because did you know it's bad for you? Yes. Right? I mean, it's the sort of like Bloomberg legalization that uh, we can expect to see. So um, I think that alliance may once again make sense on that level going forward, but probably the thing that makes the most sense is to stop using this lazy shorthand of fiscally conservative and socially. Well, when you talk about the abusive relationship, I think conservatives, and you get this a lot if you read National Review, conservatives feel the same way about the Republican Party. That's like the establishment or, you know, kind of the, the majority of the party doesn't care about the conservatives, just use them to as foot soldiers to, to put out the votes and then say, okay, you can go away for four years now. Yeah, although I think with conservatives and Republicans, like, conservatives really don't have anywhere else to go. And libertarians... In theory, there's gulch. There, gulch. <laughs> there is in theory a place for libertarians on the left or within within the Democratic Party. So Liberland. Liberland. So I, uh, first, I, I agree with you uh, entirely as it relates to this, and, uh, and I also think that you know the the rapidity with which the progressive left uh, has decided that uh, that civil liberties and free speech are now going to be something that is no longer bipartisan is uh, just kind of amazing to me given uh, if you if you remember the 90s or if you remember any of the, the discussion about this. Um, the, the question I would put to you on this though is, isn't the big barrier to what you're talking about not actually a question of whether conservatives and libertarians uh, can work together because I think that they have to, um, but is it, isn't it more that there is uh, an abiding and real presence remaining within the within the right, within the Republican Party in particular, uh, that has failed to grapple with the failures of its domestic and foreign policy over the last decade and a half, essentially, that they have avoided this internal conversation about it, and that they continue to trot out these sort of traditionalist, compassionate, conservative, communitarian policies over and over again as a way to win or as a path to the uh, uh, sort of uh, electoral victory in kind of a very crass way, and that that is actually the, the dominant view to a certain extent, it seems to me. Yes and no. The, the Republican Party, I think, is in a much better place than it was in, say, 2003, purely because the Tea Party has been doing that. Uh, the Tea Party, though, is not necessarily dominant within the Republican Party. Uh, and I know, I know that the critique that you've just leveled is a good one, because uh, when I gave the manuscript of my book to my wife, who is a lot more conservative than I am, and I gave her a red pen, it came back with all sorts of exclamation marks and expletives. Uh, Bush didn't do that. That's an unfair criticism. Um, so clearly that, that uh, wing of the Republican Party is still, uh, is still there. Uh, why I am less uh, worried about it uh, is that I think in, intellectually and ideologically uh, the Republican Party to some extent has moved back to where it was more in say 1994 
than 1993. I think the Bush years were an aberration. Now, that's not to say that Republicans won't let everyone down if they get the White House again, and it's not to say that they are a small government or as federalist as I would like. If they were, I wouldn't have bothered writing the book. Um, but it is to say uh, that you have a more active wing within the Republican Party than you did, say, when Medicare Part D was being pushed through or No Child Left Behind. Look at the reaction to, say, Common Core uh, that simply wasn't there with No Child Left Behind. Look at the reaction uh, to even a a small spending bill now that is seen in some way to increase uh, outlays on health care. That wasn't there with Medicare uh, Part D. Um, So uh, internationally as well, you also have a a, a more... uh, probably isolationist wing. Um, Now, I'll just add my caveat once more. That's not to say they won't let us all down, uh, but it is to say that the centre of gravity has moved uh, a little, uh, perhaps back to more contract with America or Reagan Revolution uh, uh, area. Well, Donald Trump. Wow, you probably won't that, I <laughs> um, let's, let's talk a little bit about immigration since uh, we, have, we agree on the uh, gay marriage and the pot issue, but in immigration you, you mentioned it need, there needs to be a national policy. Um, Alex Narasta, who, who's here at Cato, has written about state-based visa programs and other things for having federalist policy in immigration. And of course in Australia and Canada, Canada's provincial worker system has worked quite well. So why does there need to be a national policy in immigration if we have these counterexamples that show it's not necessary. Well, you can certainly include some variation inside the border. Uh, but if the debate at its first stage, the first order of the day between conservatives and libertarians is to decide whether you're going to have open borders or not, uh, you cannot have a 50-state policy. I mean, if libertarians, say, had California or Texas uh, as an open border state, what are you going to do once the person has come in? Say, no, you can't go into Vermont. No, you can't go into Michigan. That's simply not going to work. Now, I accept that the debate is not when it gets more nuanced between people who want no immigration and people who want open borders. But at the first outset, if we're going to have an immigration system that uh, is controlled uh, and in which the existing polity gets some say over who joins them and in what form, You have to have a national policy. So what should Republicans do on immigration? Because they've lost something of Reagan's ideas on immigration. They've they've lost huge amounts of Hispanic vote. They're going to need the Hispanic vote. They've completely seemed to become antagonistic to a group of people who are... Uh, who understand how great America is, who are more religious than on average, who, who want to come here to work hard, and they have alienated them constantly. So, so what can Republicans do to try and rehabilitate their image in that? You're not talking about Canadian immigrants. No, well, of course. <laughs> Canadians are... I, I think that the question of their image is a, is a thornier one. It's difficult for me to, to think about politics in that sense because I'm much more interested in, in policy. Um, As I argue in the book, this is one area in which conservatives and libertarians are just going to have to duke it out because you can't really have too much of a a compromise. Uh, My view is that the conservatives are more right on this question than the libertarians for two reasons. Firstly, as Milton Friedman pointed out, far more in favor of uh, open borders than I am, 
Uh, it is difficult to have a, a big welfare system and to have free movement of labor. The, the uh, next thing, that sentence no, though, I, was that you wanted illegal immigration then. Uh, sure, sure, as I say, that's fine until you get to the second point, which is that we now have a government, unlike in say 1900, uh, that does a great deal. It's not restricted by the enumerated powers doctrine in the way it once was. Uh, there's far more democratic input. Uh, and immigrants disproportionately seem to vote, uh, not because they're necessarily ideologues, but because they're poorer, uh, seem to vote for a party that wishes to contract liberty. Uh, and I think that if you are a country that is dedicated to a proposition, as this one is, and we think that that proposition is good, you have to be very, very careful uh, about who you allow in. But I don't see how, and this is why, I mean, I hear from conservatives over and over again how much they distrust big government to do all sorts of different things. But then when it comes to determining the labor supply down to the number of snowboarders that we're allowing in, which is something that was in the Gang of Eight bill, they somehow trust big government to know exactly the right amount. And this is to me, this is to me, yeah. <laughs> oh. Everybody else can. Uh, so, uh, uh, <laughs> there you just lost Colorado. <laughs> no, um, uh, I guess that the, I, is, is not the compromise something to say, we need, <clears throat> we need a border in modern times to, uh, to guard against uh, threats to security or to health. Uh, the Ebola problem or the terrorism problem. But we do not necessarily need a border when it comes to uh, uh, regulating labor markets or determining who can hire and who can work for whom. I mean, we've... Or regulating the, political markets is the case. Well, and, and the thing to me is, too, you know, Republicans are living with an immigration system that, you know, that exists because of the labor unions. It exists because of Cesar Chavez. It exists because there were people who were opposed to the existing programs in terms of, uh, in terms of hiring workers. They wanted to instill that. And, and over and over again, they end up defending it. And so from my perspective, it's like, can't we, can't we shift at least towards something where if you will not have a citizenship path, you will have a legalization path, you will have the ability for people to come here and work. Uh, and, and especially in an era when uh, immigration is shifting more and more to Asia than it is to, to Mexico. You know, you have more people coming from China and from India in the past couple of years than you do from Mexico, both, both legal and illegal. And that, to me, just seems like the kind of thing that we ought to be able to come together on or, or have we some agreement have on. an immigration solution comprehensively tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow, because Obama is still president and the Republicans don't trust him. <laughs> with the next president. Uh, even possibly Clinton, although easier if it were a Republican, because in a kind of a presents an opportunity for a Nixon to China moment. Um, but the vast majority of people, you know, not the ethnic demagogues or the you know, leaders of the Democratic Party perhaps, but it's about legalization. It's not about citizenship. People don't come here to vote or sit on juries or be endlessly beholden to the IRS, which is the only difference between a green card and citizenship. Uh, <laughs> You're making it sound pretty good. <laughs> so, he knows. So the, the, the ultimate solution is to, you know, have, uh, as Alex likes to say, a... Uh, a tall wall with a wide gate uh, actually have lots of opportunities which don't exist. You know, when I was, before I got my green card, which wasn't so long ago, and I became a citizen last year, got my green card six and a half years ago, uh, people would be like, well, why don't you just, like, apply? Well, you can't do that. That's not the way the system works. It's not like prove your qualifications. Uh, they there do is that no line. Right. They do that in Canada and Australia. Every other immigrant-accepting country actually, you know, says you can apply, and we will evaluate whether, you know, whether it's whether we need snowboarders or whether it's you're young enough and speak the language or whatever the criteria might be. But anyway... Um, you know, you have some sort of solution both for the high-skilled and for the low-skilled, you know, 
you're allowed to come. You have a job. That's great. If you don't have a job, you have to leave within 60 days or something. You know, some, some, okay, see, that, 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 would, that is achievable. Yeah, the last part is where we... I, I agree with everything everyone has just said until the last part. Um, I'm fine with some Bracero program, which I think was what you were alluding yeah, to with yes, Cesar Chavez. Uh, I think having been through the immigration system myself, clearly not anti-immigrant, uh, <laughs> it needs real reform. And I agree with you when it comes to the labor questions. But economies... Uh, that labor with a U or without a U? Both. It's both. <laughs> Um, it depends on my mood. Um, the, the United States is, though, more than an economy, and its culture has changed since 1900. In 1900, you had all of these Italian immigrants, I think one-third of them, possibly more, who couldn't make it in America. They left. They went home. There is now a political opportunity that we have to be very, very careful of, which is that we invite people in, and they can't make it for whatever reason. Perhaps it's not their fault. Perhaps there's a drought in the Californian Central Valley through no fault of their own, and they want to work hard. And immediately, demagogues who have managed to create a strong federal government that allows people to change the law from the center and also that controls the economy very strictly say two things. One, we have to help these people with public money. And two, the other side hates them. I think we have to be careful on that because the 60-day annual leave process doesn't seem to be working. No, but that's because you make it so hard to come back. Mexicans used to come back and forth Five even and after Bracero. Even after Bracero. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, you screen for, as Ben said, terrorism, public health, you know, things like that. But otherwise, if you're not violating any law other than being in the country illegally, um, you know, you're not, even under current law, you're not eligible for, Im legal immigrants aren't eligible for welfare okay. for five years. This is, this I would also be wary, though, I, I mean, Charles is very, sort of written very clearly in the book about this distinction, but I think many, many people do fudge the fiscal argument and the cultural argument, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, there's this sort of this sort of smudging where we say, okay, well, you know, maybe there's welfare in Milton Friedman and da-da-da, and so we have to be careful about, you know, taking on more fiscal obligations, and we have this sort of trench warfare about whether immigrants are ultimately a net positive or a net negative, and whether illegal immigrants change the equation. And then at the same time, there's this sort of rhetoric of our fragi fragile culture and our, and our democratic culture and uh, our participatory culture which need to be protected and to me it sets off alarm bells when those two things are conflated yeah, that well, that sort of sending a bunch of immigrants into our public schools and even sending a bunch of immigrants onto our welfare rolls assuming something that looks like the system we have now is a completely separate question from whether they will somehow un-americanize america and that i think is false. and that's what leads into the question actually, actually it's just very that. briefly i think that the real problem you, you talked about the the political uh, problem that the right faces i think the real problem is uh, people holding up signs that say <laughs> who's doing the raping Mm. And, and like as long as as long as immigrants are in the conversation, can uh, we send Trump back to whichever planet he's from? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish that it was people holding up signs saying that. Right, <laughs> that would imply it's sort of a lone wacko. Right, it's the sort of get Obama the Muslim yes, hand yes. off my welfare or whatever. Right, it's. Uh, confusion with Obama, by the way, is that he's Keynesian, not Kenyan. So you, <laughs> you have been that joke is. <laughs> Uh, there are too many signs. There, there, there are too many people saying. But it's fine it's if there's a couple of idiots saying that. The trouble is that it's someone who that we're taking at least ostensibly seriously in our political debate. Well, this is, I think, actually highlights maybe an intractable issue because, um, and it goes into education too, which your chapter on education is very good with a lot of discussion of whether you're viewing it as citizen craftsmanship, which is this very scary totalitarian impulse. Um, but for me, when I look at immigration on the libertarian side, viewing nations as somewhat ad hoc conglomerations and not synonymous with community or people, it's hard for me to come up with an argument against immigration that is not also an argument against newborn children of people here. 
Well, and and, the, and the if they are all going to vote Democrat, if they're all going to be of a certain persuasion, I would still want them to be born. Sure. And, I, and then the next question is, do we need to create education systems or something? Because you seem to think about nations as more of a family or something more coherent, possibly, than libertarians tend to think. No, it's, it's not that I think of them as a family. I would, I would note that those two things are uh, different in the way that uh, sort of ad hoc families and, the, and an adoption service are different. I mean, in, in the one circumstance, you, you simply can't and shouldn't try to control what, what people do when they're, uh, when they're free, but you do look at a family if they wish to adopt a child, and you, you see whether they're a good fit or not. Uh, the existing polity doesn't and shouldn't get a say over what private people do within the borders, but they can choose who join them. I do think there's an intellectual difference, so even if we disagree yeah. as to the conclusion. Uh, on, the, on the family or, or the cultural point, America strikes me as being uh, extraordinarily different than everywhere else. Uh, and, and that is because to say you are an American carries with it, and I think Ofright should carry with it, uh, certain conceptual baggage. Uh, if I were to move to Japan, uh, I could go there for five, ten years, and I'm sure people would be very nice to me, but if I stood up and said, you know, I'm Japanese, they'd laugh. Uh, if a Japanese person comes to America after five years, not only do we accept that they're an American, but we cherish it. But what do they mean when they say they're an American? There are certain responsibilities attached to that. If somebody stood up and said, I'm a proud American immigrant, but I want to get rid of the Bill of Rights, I think we should have a communist-style economy, you know, I don't believe in speech, we wouldn't the accept Faculties that. of Harvard Law School. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Which we think, bend on. I think, I think at that point, you appoint them a democratic uh, precinctman yeah. in, uh, in Vermont. I think we, we do accept that. We accept that all the time. People come here all the time and say well, things that are anathema to Harvard everything. We don't, we don't punish it, and nor should we. That is, of course, a contradiction, a, a virtuous contradiction within liberalism, is we allow, uh, my sense of liberalism, we allow illiberalism. But we wouldn't choose that. If that were becoming an increasing problem, we would say, hold on a moment, we do have a culture here, we are committed to a certain idea. You would just have to see maybe half a million people, and of course this is a reductio ad absurdum, half a million people coming in and saying, actually I don't think all men are created equal. And you would see a real backlash, and a virtuous backlash. I'm just suggesting that there is a virtue in uh, controlling the process by which people come in, not to check whether they'll vote Republican or Democrat, but to make sure uh, that we are ensuring what is a fragile cultural setup is there for our kids. I, I just want to throw in one more point, which is, you know, we should all be appalled that the Canadians are doing something worth imitating. I know. Uh, no, that's not true. People are, people are too mean about Canada. But, but that actually, I think the Canadian system really highlights the fact that to a, to a significant extent, immigration isn't a national uh, concern that, that, again, the sort of broad uh, overarching fiscal point aside, and it's not an irrelevant point, um, when someone emigrates to Arizona, I am perfectly indifferent. I will not interact with that person. That person as an individual will not change my life. That person's vote will not be enough weight. Uh, many, 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 many thousands of people's votes won't be enough weight to change our polity. Uh, I think it's not unreasonable to say, just as you would say in so many other areas, why not devolve that decision to the people who will actually interact with that human being? Why not devolve that decision to the people who will actually, you know, something that is a closer approximation to the adoptive family? So just to clarify, I, I'm uh, confused. So, so Arizona would control... 
I mean, right. no, so so in the, the Canadian the Canadian instance, other than a sort of basic, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I know Cato's done lots of work on this, but um, other than a sort of basic uh, security and health check, um, the provinces recruit, uh, they allocate their visas however they want, they bring people in, and while they extract a um, you know, the intention has to be to come to the initial province. There is not a, a requirement that they stay there. See, that, even, that's, even again, an overall number in Iowa could trade theirs to Texas. But what, but what you see in Canada is because they're allowed to target those visas, by and large, the people do stay, right? And because they can be selective, they select people who will stay. Sure. I mean, look, it, it, it's an interesting idea. All, all you're doing there, of course, is removing to the local level what, what I'm arguing in a way you objected with Vermont's single payer. So, sure, I mean, but I, again, I, I'm but talking about in the same way that I would be fine with as an incremental change the Vermont scenario and just check it on the sort of uh, fundamental level, I think, the same with immigration. I'm going to open it up for questions here in just uh, one sec so that the mics could come down. But the, um, the, the last question uh, what I'm going to ask is the is based on the education element. Because when we, we combine the immigration aspect with the way conservatives and maybe libertarians have different views about education and what it's for, and you write about it, as I said. Um, but will conservatives really give up the desire to inculcate virtuous, industrious, godliness, piety, or something like that? Is, is there op- opposition to state education or for pro-voucher? Is it really just a product of being on the outs for their curriculum. And if they could take it over, they would be in principle for it, and they would want to teach, because you don't talk a lot about the sort of virtuous Bill Bennett element of conservative, we need to make virtuous, pious citizens. So are they really allies on that if they could control the curriculum? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I'm certainly in favor of making virtuous citizens, but I do think it's up to the parents, and I think it's a local community question rather than a national one. I think Bill Bennett would say, no, it's a priority of the national government. And I do think this is going to be a real challenge. Uh, for conservatives and libertarians. Uh, I'm on the libertarian side on the question. This is probably another one of those areas where uh, you can, of course, and should devolve that, uh, but that's a libertarian presumption, so we're going to fight over whether we do that in the first place. Uh, okay. Uh, Roger Polano over here. <laughs> Got to call my boss first. Uh, I don't think so. Is, is it yeah. picking up? Okay, good. Um, I want to, we're not going to solve the immigration issue. Um, so I want to go back to what I take to be a central part of the book, Charles, namely the federalism thesis. And it seems to me that you've, that, that carries a lot of weight in the book because you offer it as a practical solution to give us 50 different, uh, opportunities to pursue whatever happiness we can in a given state. But hasn't that train, uh, left, uh, the station back in 1868 with the passage of the 14th Amendment, uh, which uh, tends to leaven things out. I mean, it fundamentally changed federalism in the country by providing federal remedies against state violations of our rights. And that is only exacerbated by the the 16th and 17th Amendments, which provided the foundation for the federal government, which the New Deal Court uh, authorized and has given us the main form of federalism today, namely cooperative federalism, uh, federal-state partnerships, whereby you have grants in aid, where the federal government controls the strings of the grants that they give the states, and that gives us the big government from which we try to extract little corners of liberty back through the 14th Amendment, which, which regularizes things all across the country. Indeed, I just, while we were talking, 
the little sisters of, uh, of the poor lost their case in the Tenth Amendment this morning. So there's a good example of how things are going to be, or the Tenth Circuit, uh, how things are going to be regularized. So it seems to me that the federalism issue may have worked prior to the 14th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment puts a fly in the ointment, so to speak, because it will give us a federal, uh, we'll, we'll come back as it were for the purpose of the 14th Amendment, of the federalism, through the 14th Amendment, through the back door, so to speak. Uh, well, the simple answer is, is yes. Uh, although, in, again, in the long term, I think we are looking at a different uh, country. I think we're looking at a, a country that's going to become increasingly divided along religious and political lines. I think we're going to see a country that is uh, increasingly atomized because of technology and the pressures, therefore, from below, I imagine, uh, will change. It is certainly very bad. Uh, if you go back to, was it 2005, Gonzalez v. Reich, uh, the, that case was essentially a follow-up to the Wickard v. Filburn case on the question of marijuana this time. And Going from wheat to weed. Right. Uh, the question essentially was, was can an individual in a state not engaged in interstate commerce in any obvious way grow their own marijuana? In 1942, the question was wheat. Uh, now, the, the Supreme Court upheld Wickard, said the federal government can regulate weed in, I think it was California. There was an amicus brief filed on behalf of that position by left-wing groups that supported marijuana legalization. Why? Because they were so worried that the rest of their agenda, that the rest of their national agenda, uh, would be uh, obviated should the court decide otherwise. And that's how bad it has got. Well, I feel like we should go to the man who argued race, oh. <laughs> uh, Randy Barnett here for the next question. Hi, uh, it's Randy Barnett from Georgetown Law School. Uh, Charlie, I'm looking forward to reading the book. I haven't read it yet. I have a question about the courts and the we're going into a Republican uh, primary uh, season in which people are vying to be president and they're going to be appointing judges. There's no federalism solution to which judges the next president appoints to the federal judiciary. Um, and I want to suggest that the conservatarian position ought to be originalism. Um, we'll appoint judges that will respect the original meaning of the Constitution, whether that means sustaining laws or uh, uh, invalidating laws. Uh, and yet, Conservatives, friends of mine, ardently continue to push a judicial restraint or def meaning deference agenda. And if you combine originalism with deference, you really undermine originalism. And it's actually, frankly, meant to undermine originalism at, at key points, as, as is the reliance on precedent meant to underline, undermine originalism. And the conservatarian position really ought to be, look, we're going to go with the Constitution the way it's written. Every provision of it, including the 14th Amendment, including the 9th Amendment, will go through the whole thing because that's not a perfectly libertarian document. Roger already mentioned a few of the non-libertarian provisions that are in the Constitution. That ought to be the middle ground that we agree on, but there are ardent conservatives that are very vocally now being very disparaging in the pages of National Review and elsewhere towards the, quote, libertarian lawyers who are advocating what? Who are just advocating original meaning of the Constitution. And if we're wrong, the libertarian lawyers are wrong about the Ninth Amendment on originalist grounds, or if we're wrong about the 14th Amendment, well, that's how, why we should be rejected, because we're wrong on originalism, not because our position is not adequately restrained or deferential. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think that 
stare decisis is possibly not working <laughs> for the right. Um, in my view, it shouldn't have been entertained really in the first place. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But we are always going to come back to the question you posed at the end, which is, well, okay, yes, we look at it from an originalist perspective, but what does that mean? Um, so in, insofar as you're uh, criticizing those who are in favor of deference per se, uh, I'm with you. I'm not sure that would solve all of the judicial fights that we have, though, because, you know, one person will stand up and say, hey, the Ninth Amendment uh, guarantees all of these sort of uh, amorphous rights, and the next person will stand up and say, no, it's just an explanation of how to read the Bill of Rights in the light of the enumerated powers doctrine, and we'll have the same fights with different language. Well, that, no, no, that's not the same fight. That's a different fight. Let's have that fight. Something. Rather yes. than sure. saying, you know, that judge should not be, you know, the, the black-robed, unelected judge should be, you know, just sitting on his hands and deferring to the people. It's like, oh, so should they be deferring on Second Amendment rights as well? Oh, no, no, on that one, they need to be striking down those restrictive laws. No, no, I agree. I, that was badly phrased. What I meant was that we might have the same outcome, but certainly, yes, I would, I would, I would welcome that debate. I, I think that, uh, you know, my old boss, Harry Crocker, had a line about natural family planning. Try it. It doesn't work. And I think that that's pretty much the same experience that we're having with judicial restraint, isn't it? Well, there's also, I, I was uh, going to raise my colleague Damon Root's uh, book, which sort of chronicles, again, the way that um, the conservatarian alliance kind of founders on, on this question of judicial activism and, and what it should look like. Uh, I must admit I was a little abashed when I looked out in the audience and saw Randy Barnett looking at me, and I was like, I'm definitely going to say words that are wrong. <laughs> How do you think I just felt? <laughs> I, I, I think we all died a little inside as we were talking. It's, it's okay. You did a good job, I think. The yeah, next Randy. worst thing but, is you could have said, and now I introduce James Madison. <laughs> <laughs> you know nothing of my work. <laughs> but that actually, is, like, that debate, that, uh, that internal debate, which has been ongoing for a long time, um, is also the place which which the sort of um, you know the the bit that you read earlier of the kind of uh, the caricature of the libertarian as this sort of totalizer as this sort of uh, burner to the ground and starter anew uh, you know that that this is another front on which that debate is occurring right to sort of say well listen the, the courts should do what's good and right rather than what's in the document or right. what has already been you know or sort of the you know, defense of the status quo. Yeah, the, the, the moment somebody on the right says to me, well, this works or doesn't work for our political agenda, I think we're in dangerous territory constitutionally. We are, of course, always going to have debates, though, as to what the words mean. Um, so I'm, my name's Brian. I'm at a disadvantage. I haven't read your book yet. So you may answer this, but I'll take a spoiler. Um, it seems that the argument about federalism makes a lot of sense, but a possible weakness there is that technology is driving more and more activity onto a national level. By way of a brief example, let's take Bitcoin. New York has come out with their bit license. California is working on a state level regulation. The problem is, you mentioned the right of exit, but if I want to engage in the Bitcoin industry, I don't have a right of exit because New York and California are so powerful that their regulations are gonna distort the market. And if I live in Wyoming, no, no, no you know, entrepreneur is gonna say, well, I'm gonna forego New York so I can comply with Wyoming regulations that are, you know, say, lighter. And I'm wondering if we, we to the extent that we want to be sort of pro-liberty, there are cases where we may need to get comfortable with the notion of, no, this needs to be handled at a federal level, it's true interstate commerce, and at least then people in Wyoming who have elected representatives at the federal level but don't have a voice in Albany can have impact in it. I was just wondering... 
what your thoughts on that dynamic uh, I mean, was. I, I'm for interstate commerce when it's interstate commerce. That sounds, I'm no expert on Bitcoin, but that sounds like it may well be uh, an example of it. I imagine the same principle applies to the dollar, which has been in place for you know, two, two and a bit centuries. Uh, there are inherently national questions. Um, most of them aren't, though. Uh, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a, a country in which those issues we cannot avoid dealing with nationally are dealt with nationally. Uh, what we really shouldn't be seeing is, is people in Brooklyn threatening never to go to Indiana because of their religious freedom laws. I mean, these people wouldn't go to Indiana if they were paid. <laughs> um, Unless there's like a $12 pickle you can well, yeah. <laughs> whenever, uh, whenever Reason says something that uh, other people in the liberty movement don't like, we always get a bunch of letters threatening to unsubscribe, which right. inevitably do not come from subscribers. Yeah. So it's sort of the same. <laughs> Right. Well, it depends on better. I mean, that's a lot of original environmental controls came from the fact that a lot of businesses wanted the federal government to take it over because it was a lot easier to deal with one than 50. And for businesses, they'd prefer it. But then I started to get very scared of them being in here with on K Street with well, one thing. Again, the issue is whether it's truly interstate commerce or not. You know, we can have debates over certain things, but clearly growing a plant in your backyard for your right. own consumption, that's the paradigmatic example of intrastate commerce, I would also, not, not even commerce, just not something that should be, yeah. Anyway. I would also just chime in and say, uh, it, it just made me nervous to hear sort of semi-unchallenged the idea that uh, sort of technology or the internet or something uh, broadly lends itself to this kind of centralized regulation because of course it all crosses borders. Uh, I think you could just as easily and I think more accurately make the case that um, there is, you know, every day and everywhere uh, examples where new technologies make it easier to, A, be quite sure that the thing that you are looking to regulate or tax happened not in an interstate way, right? This is uh, the internet tax proposals, for instance. Um, and also that uh, sort of markets are forever creating uh, more environments, more uh, venues to sort of just circumvent the the state apparatus or the regulatory rap apparatus altogether, right? You know, we can talk about privatizing the post office for decades and decades, and then somebody can just invent email, and we can say, never mind, we're just kidding, right? <laughs> so this is this is happening everywhere and always at an increasing rate. Uh, so I just wanted to throw in there that technology is uh, almost certainly a force for decentralization, not an argument for centralization. If I can follow on this conversation with a much more tangible one go back to our favorite example today of Vermont. Vermont has a very terrible GMO labeling law about to be implemented or somewhere along the way very soon being implemented. In the Congress, the Republicans want to pass a national GMO labeling law or at least a federal program that somehow circumvents and preempts state-level GMO labeling laws. So Charlie, and I, I think I've saw an article about this at the Federalist, Ben, is the way to save federalism here to stand up for Vermont's terrible GMO labeling law? Are these the battles we need to be picking where we take terrible California environmental re regulations and say they need to stay in California and that's great and Vermont can do the, all these idiotic things with their food, but we have to defend them, so. Yes, <laughs> it, it, will, it will involve making uh, defenses that we don't personally agree with. And uh, the example I used earlier was it's okay to acknowledge that Massachusetts is a good state and so is Texas. 
Uh, everyone in Massachusetts seems to want to turn the state into uh, every state into Massachusetts. But you do see this in Texas as well. There's a Texas way. Well, I'm not sure the Texas way would work in Connecticut. I'm not sure that it would work in uh, Montana either. Um, and that will involve accepting that there are lots of stupid things people do in Massachusetts <laughs> and lots of stupid things people do in Texas and that we're for them. Now, you don't have to, of course, go to bat for the, uh, the policy itself. Uh, it's worth couching in the sort of language I hope I've been using. They have the right to do it. Uh, you wouldn't like it if they came into your state and tried to impose X, Y, uh, or Z. Uh, but absolutely, if, if, if you have any right in this country, any central right, it's the right to be wrong. I would put an but asterisk that's for, on that. For it, individuals, that's an oh, individual. No, I would right. put an asterisk on that because sometimes in certain regulatory areas, um, what one state, not Vermont, but if California or New York does it, necessarily all you know, nationwide companies are going to have to comply with that. And that's where you have to deal with issues of implied preemption, whether, regular, whether, whether statutory or constitutional through the Dormant Commerce Clause, which you know, are com controversial among very different kinds of um, uh, uh, thinkers and, 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 and poli uh, you know, political uh, uh, alliances. So it is more difficult than simply saying, yes, let Vermont regulate whatever they want. But, you know, if you have a patchwork quilt of GMO regulations in this country, well, the company's just going to, they're not going to have, like, two sets of packaging. They'll just have one set of packaging with the GMO stuff. And that'll, you know, perhaps be, on the whole, a greater, you know, diminution of liberty than it would be uh, if we had the federal government come in and, and, and say, no, we're, that's preempted. I think I'm just going to chime in, though, one more time with the, my, to sort of sound another alarm bell about this cheerful federalism, right? I mean, it, it is not at all the same thing to say, you know, I think that your desire to have an exclusively trans fat based diet is probably unwise, Ben, and you should consider some carrots. <sighs> But Never. you know what? You do you. <laughs> we don't need laws about trans fats. That is a very, very different thing than saying, I think that Vermont's desire to ban trans fats is a bad idea, but you know what? Vermont do Vermont. That is, that is... Uh... It depends which question you're answering, I think. If the question is, should we regulate this at the federal level, does Vermont have a, a legal or a moral right to impose this silly law, then our answer should be no and yes, respectively. If it's in Vermont, will I fight this, then the answer should be yes. But there's, uh, but there's this additional question which always rears its head, which is, well, when, when, do, we, when do we say, is the federal government defending defending individual choice when do we, you know are there places where and that's the last two questions both are there places where centralizing the authority or making a single rule is in the defense of individual liberty over and above state sovereignty and that will happen all the time and, that, and is a legitimate question i think that the it is it is a legitimate question i think though that the latest economic remarks from from hillary clinton can maybe you know, give us a clue to her future department uh, to manage the sharing economy, you know, is going to give us a lot of different opportunities to stand up, I think, for uh, the ability of, of disruptive technology and for, and for other uh, market uh, competitors to be able to compete within these states. And I think that we can make a good argument about that against states that are going to look to restrict them and to engage in all sorts of silly laws, as you say, but ones that they are going to justify on the basis of, of health or welfare or whatever. Uh, and that, I think, is, is something that is good and is, is part of the American experience historically and is something that we've just lost over time. And, and, and frankly, getting back to that is a step toward getting back to having policy locally grown and have it be something that comes and organically. GMO free. And GMO 
Mill Free organically <laughs> handcrafted from your community, uh, which I, is where I, I would want to be. I just think you have to accept some rough with the smooth. I mean, I, I agree with your instinct, but because we will all disagree as to what constitutes a national law that, in, uh, that guarantees individual liberty within states that can disproportionately affect others or affect the individual, uh, there's, going to be have, there's going to have to be some acknowledgement that, okay, that's a terrible law. We think that this is having bad consequences, uh, but the people over there don't think it's having bad consequences. And if we want to be left alone, uh, then we're going to have to leave them alone. Because otherwise, they're going to come straight back into power and they're going to say, hey, all of those things that you thought were the good uses of federalism, we don't, and we're ruling them out in the name of individual liberty. I, th- I think we have to take some some of the rough. Or Nebraska and Oklahoma are going to sue you because you have marijuana legalization up there. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, taking us back to the judiciary and government and accountability, we have four parts of um, government, judiciary, government, and elected officials. The grand jury is we the people, has been in a smoke and mirrors, been hijacked by the judiciary, the government, and elected officials. The checks and balances of our government are off due to this. The American public has nowhere to go to report corruption where it is being investigated at arm's length. We have a 100% self-policing system due to this. That is not working. In the Federalist, how do you see going back to where the American public has a place to go to ask for a special grand jury without going through a prosecuting attorney who is holding the key to the grand jury and claiming you don't have any right in front of it? I'm going to acknowledge my own ignorance on this particular question and perhaps throw that to Elia. It's... I don't... <laughs> Trevor, do you want to paraphrase? Well, it's... it's, it's uh, it, well... Can I, can I just say, so speaking, just speaking in very general terms, I do think that we have a problem where we've reached a point where so many of these decisions are made by the administrative state and, and determined within those processes by bureaucrats who are both writing the laws and then, uh, and then determining the outcome of such cases. That is a huge problem. But I think that's a bigger problem than just uh, what Charles has written. Yeah, and don't put too much... Too, I mean, juries are cool, but don't put too much faith in them. <laughs> and they are, you know... Normal people. (laughs) I'm Michael Casey from George Washington University. Congratulations, Mr. Cook, on the book, and thank you all for the great discussion. I wanted to bring the discussion back to civil rights. Mr. Cook, you mentioned that that uh, train has maybe passed, but you know I think that given the events of the last year, civil rights and is the area where federalism is being played out, you know, more than ever. Um, Rick Perry admitted a few weeks ago that the Republican Party has maybe not sufficiently admitted the role of the federal government in protecting minority rights, that there's been an overemphasis on the 10th Amendment at the expense of the 14th Amendment. Because I think that minorities and African Americans in this country might view the conservatarian conservatarian outlook with fear and apprehension. Because if you're going to devolve power to local and state governments, you're giving power to the very governments that have treated minorities and African Americans most poorly, and at least historically with outright hostility. So how would uh, a conservatarian address the concerns of African Americans, particularly when it has been the federal government, not state and local governments, that have protected them? Well, I, I think generally speaking, I make an exception for civil rights. Uh, It's partly a practical exception. I think if you were to try and sell uh, an education, transportation, energy case uh, under the term, say, states' rights, without making it clear that this didn't involve, say, the repeal of the Civil Rights Act, uh, you wouldn't get very far. And that's because two neutral terms in American discourse, at least intrinsically neutral terms, 
states' rights uh, and secession uh, have both been tainted uh, by bad actors. There's nothing inherently wrong with seceding, and there's nothing inherently wrong with states' rights or federalism either. Uh, but because of American history, because it led to the establishment of micro-tyrannies, uh, there are quite reasonably uh, a number of the fears that you just outlined. And in the book, with the exception of asking uh, how long sections 2 and 7 of the Civil Rights Act, those which uh, apply to private businesses and employers, will be compatible with the left's foray uh, uh, into uh, enforcing its gay rights agenda. And I know that gay rights agenda is a bit of an inflammatory term, but uh, I think those who are now still shouting do have one. Uh, with the exception of, of looking at that, in my view, this has to be a, a question that's handled nationally. See, that, that, that's the whole point. There's a difference between public and private actors. And we have to recognize that the Jim Crow era and segregation and you know, slavery before it uh, are a huge kind of uh, extraordinary circumstance in right. our uh, nation's history that took the extraordinary response uh, uh, of the Civil Rights Era and the Civil Rights Act. Um, I think it would be hard to justify an imposition on, you know, uh, in, in the gay rights context, if you're a public official, if you're a magistrate or a county clerk, I mean, you signed up for the job. The law of the land now is you have to give marriage license. You don't like it, no one's forcing you in your personal capacity to do anything about it. Well, they are, but that's what I'm about to get to. Uh, but in your public capacity, your only option is to resign. Uh, on the private side, on the other hand, unless there is that state-supported uh, you know, Jim Crow style or some other type of monopoly power where you're the only uh, you know, wedding chapel for 100 miles around or the only baker for 100 miles around or something like that, uh, it's hard to see why we would invert the normal constitutional processes of protecting your individual private right to act as you see fit. Um, and that public versus private distinction, I mean, that goes back to the whole conservatarian thing as well, you know, using public institutions versus private suasion and culture and, and things like that. So um, the idea is the federal government and federal courts are, are and should always be there to guarantee people's civil rights and to guarantee that state action does not deprive people of liberty or uh, equality under the law and these sorts of things. Uh, but in a pluralistic society, there has to be freedom for everyone to act as they wish, you know, until the, the point of my, until their fist hits the point of my nose. Okay, we got time for one more, so uh, here. I wanted to ask about uh, abortion specifically, and um, that's oh, an that's issue can, that can sometimes fall under civil rights, uh, civil liberties, uh, individual liberties sort of paradigm. And where do you think that falls in terms of federalism and the conservatarian agenda? Because... On the one hand, I think both pro-life and pro-choice advocates would say that it's an important individual issue that shouldn't necessarily be decided at the state level if there's an unborn child's right to life shouldn't exist in California, but or sorry, in Texas, but not in California. And pro-choice advocates would say the opposite. Do you think this is an issue that should be handled on federalist grounds, or there should be more of a national policy, like you were saying, on civil rights issues? It's an easy well, one. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I am, am pro-life, although I'm not quite sure uh, how effective a government can be in this area. But the basic answer to your question is that I do think this is a state issue. I think it's a state issue, legally at least, because I don't think Roe v. Wade was decided correctly, uh, and I don't think the Constitution says anything about this. Uh, now, of course, that would be hideous uh, if you feel strongly about it either way. But I also think that uh, is just the way the cookie has crumbled within the American context. Um, uh, 
I know that most of my colleagues at National Review, for example, uh, are in favor of federal 20-week abortion bans. I support that law in principle, but I don't see the constitutional justification for it. Again, if we're going to take the commerce clause seriously, as far as my understanding of it, that's not commerce. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a, a local question. Now, um, I have my own view on uh, what it is that we're discussing. Uh, I think uh, moral suasion is imperative. Uh, I think laws, to an extent, are imperative uh, at the state level. I am skeptical of what the government can do, given that abortion is so entrenched. Uh, that isn't to say I don't think it is killing uh, a life. I do. Uh, but uh, And, again, forgive the... the uh, bomb-throwing analogy, but uh, slavery was also terribly wrong. What one could actually do about it from the governmental perspective in the 1840s and 50s uh, was a much more complicated question. Uh, so, yes, I think it's a state issue, uh, and I think uh, uh, it, it's a matter of trial and error. Just very briefly, I think that one of the more challenging questions on this topic going forward is going to be about the funding issue. After the experience in Colorado with uh, uh, Larks and everything else that's, that's gone on there, the real push in the next election is going to be uh, federal funding and, and, and really putting it behind these programs. And I don't know about you, but uh, shoving hormones into poor people, which is essentially what these projects amount to, is not the sort of thing that gives me uh, a lot of, uh, I'm not very comfortable with that idea, particularly when I'm paying for it. So it's going to be an interesting subject, and I think it's going to run into a lot of these federalism questions just based on which programs states want to do and with whose money. Okay, well, the book is The Conservative Man Conservatarian Manifesto, and it's spectacular. You can buy it outside. Please join me in thanking our panel, author Charles Cook, and Dominic Kathleen Ward, Lisa Carroll.